up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here for episode 154 of the MMA Ratings Podcast, and we have a special guest with us. It's like, nah, nah he's not a special guest. He's here all day. Schwan uh, James is back finally after a couple weeks away, man. Schwan, uh, say hello to everybody. Let everyone know how you're doing. Hey, guys. Nice to be back. Seems like I'm a special guest. I haven't been on for a little bit, but, you know, got that parenting thing always getting in the way. But I got one more year. Mm-hmm. And then they're all out of the house, so it'll be really party time once that happens. You know, you know, it don't end to you till they put you in the ground, though, right? You know that that's yeah, kind of the rule. Yeah, but the good thing, especially with girls, is they try to avoid you so they can do all their fun stuff. So, so even though I'll still be responsible, there'll be moments of peace because I just won't. They'll be trying to keep, get things over me or, or sneak around me. So then I'll be just like in that blissful ignorance kind of stage. All right, I will. I um. I beg to differ. Let's see what happens in five years when they're still calling you, asking you for um, money and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, that'll never end. That, that, that for sure will never end. And what also will never end is the endless amounts of MMA that we have to talk about. So we have a couple of different topics that to hit today. We are going to preview UFC 248, which is this weekend, a major pay-per-view featuring two title fights. We're talking about UFC Norfolk, the fights that occurred this past uh, Saturday in Norfolk, Virginia. And also talking about Rose Domingues and Paul Felder, because they're two individuals who are pretty important names in their respective uh, weight classes. And they have been having some interesting conversations about to retire or not to retire. So we're going to touch upon that and a couple of different stories as well, too. But um, before we do that, as always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. You know, we do the MMA Ratings Podcast every Tuesday, uh, tape about 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we appreciate everyone who comes to our YouTube channel to check out the content there, as well as going over to Spotify, um, Google Podcasts, uh, iTunes, Anchor, and all the other platforms where we are to check out our content there, too. Be sure to like and subscribe each and every opportunity you can so we can get our listeners numbers up and also share the content too as well be sure to um share it across your social media channels if you see myself or shawan or anyone else uh, affiliated with mma ratings sharing content please be sure to um give us a like and give us a share there as well too um, we always appreciate the opportunity to spread what we are talking about across the social space you can find our content over at mmaratings.net where you can rate the fights and tell us how excited you are about upcoming battles and also let us know what you thought about past fights and how you would rate them using our star system. You can also read plenty of our content there. Myself, Schwan does some writing as well, as well as Adam Adam Martin, who is doing the bulk of the writing and um, covering a lot of content over there. So you can you can check out the channel for all we're putting out there as well. You can catch me at rgarcia underscore sports on Twitter and Instagram and Schwan Humes at Black Jordan Brain. So from there, let's jump right into the preview of UFC 248. And we have a card that is very heavy at the top. But once again, there isn't much else below that, but we are going to hit on a couple of different things that are going on on this card. But of course, we cannot start without talking about the main event, where where the middleweight title is up for grabs as Israel Adesanya welcomes Joel Romero back into the title picture 
This is a little bit different though. He's a, he only reason why he's in the title picture is because Paulo Costa is hurt and had to do had to get surgery on his bicep, I believe. So he's going to be out for an extended period of time. But this still gives us a pretty interesting fight because Adesanya made it clear that he wanted to fight Romero. He's on a quest to clean out the middleweight division, as he's called it before, looking onward and upward to bigger challenges. So, Shuan, let's talk about this challenge for Adesanya here. What are your thoughts about this fight at 185, and how do you see it playing out? Well, I, I commend Adesanya yeah, for trying to take on the biggest challenge because if, if it wouldn't have been Romero, he probably would have tried to go for Costa just because that's the m most dangerous fight in, in the division right now. Uh, as far as the matchup, I, I I have a different perspective on a lot of people. A lot of people, once again, are going with the Yo Romero is a world-class wrestler. He's going to be able to take Adesanya down. He's going to try and clinch him up, tire him out. And, and while I think that's a possibility, Yo's never been the most dominant wrestler in mixed martial arts. A lot of his wrestling has been of the defending takedowns, creating scrambles, getting back up from takedowns, not so much consistently taking guys down and controlling them and working them over on the ground. A lot of what has separated Yo Romero as a mixed martial artist is the fact that he, even though he's not a, a striker by trade, he, he has a lot of natural tendencies and instincts that lend themselves towards striking, which is where I think the fight's going to be very interesting. Unlike a, a fight like with the Kelvin Gastelum fight, I think this fight's going to be a lot more similar, like a more active version of the Anderson Silva-Israel Adesanya fight. Because as much as Yo Romero is a big hitter, and as much as he's got a good chin and as action-packed as a lot of his fights are, he's not really a go-ahead, put-his-head-down kind of brawler. He's a guy with a lot of little tricks and intricacies to his fighting style, whether it's a little footwork, how he manipulates timing, manipulates rhythm, manipulates space, how he can just, he, sets, he uses feints and little, little short strikes to set up his bigger shots, and he'll bait guys in you know, pretending he's hurt, dropping his hands, moving in a straight line to get you to come to follow him in a straight line so that he can angle out and counter you. It's a lot of those little finer tricks that I think are going to cause Adesanya some problems because Adesanya has had his most success against guys who are basically up-and-down fighters. They come straight ahead, they try to press, they try to throw volume, they try to land big bombs. Against those kind of guys, he just picks them apart, counters them, uh, chops them up. Against somebody like Romero, it's going to be a little bit harder to land those clean counters and to establish the range and the timing you want because he's not he's not hard to hit, but he's hard to hit the way that you want to hit him. And that makes the big difference. Uh, a lot of grapplers won't know what I'm talking about, but a lot of guys who watch boxing or who used to box or do striking of any sort of sort are going to know exactly what I talk about. He's there to be hit, and you can hit him, but you can't hit him quite the way you want. And when you can't hit somebody the way you want, that's when the fight gets interesting. That's when you start really seeing a guy go into his bag of tricks to get the work done. And that's what I feel you're going to see in this fight. So let's talk about that there. And let's talk about um, Adesanya's chin, because you mentioned him taking damage and um, potentially taking some big shots here. Do you think that we are in a situation where we may see him hurt? Like, does Yo Yoel Romero have the skill and the power, that combination of being able to hurt um, Adesanya in a way that can put him in a spot that we haven't seen him yet? Well, we've seen Adesanya hurt before. He got hurt by, um, he got, Anderson Silva kind of rang his bell a little bit. A lot of people, if you watch closely, you notice Anderson kind of stung him a couple times. Kelvin Gastelum hurt him more than once. And I don't know that Robert Whitaker just like really hurt him, but he got, Robert, Robert Whitaker got his attention with a couple of the shots he landed. Adesanya is a world-class striker, but as far as I've always looked at, I've never bought into the fact that he's super durable or a super kind of physical kind of fighter, I believe that if you can get 
get to him and land clean shots that you can back him up and you can hurt him. The thing is, most guys don't have, have they don't have the durability to take the shots he has and stand in the pocket and counter. Usually guys are either loading up big to get him away from them or not knock him out, or they're trying to stay away from his power. Like they're they're being defensive. And most mixed martial artists don't have the skill or the instincts to be even competently effective while being defensive. Yo Romero does. So I fully expect Yo Romero to land big, big shots to the body. I land, I expect him to land a couple big shots to the head. And I, I do expect him to do some damage to Israel Adesanya. I do expect him to back him up a little bit. As I said, Yo Romero is one of the biggest hitters in mixed martial arts, and he's a much heavier he's a much heavier hitter than Kelvin Gastelum. He's at this stage he's a much heavier hitter than um, than uh, Anderson Silva. So I believe if he hits him, he can't hurt him. I believe he can knock him out. I don't know that he has the craft to put the shots together necessary to knock him out, but I believe he has the power in individual strikes to put to put Adesanya away if he can land the right shots. So let's also combine that now, and let's talk about the wrestling function of this fight here. Uh, I do believe that Yoel will have the um, takedown advantage in this, in this fight here. I, and what I mean by that is he'll have that in his bag of tricks. Um, I think that he does have the opportunity to score takedowns here if he wanted to. But as you said, he doesn't, he doesn't look for those takedowns as often. He's more of a use it for a uh, defensive purposes, or that's what we've seen so far year to date. Um, do you think that that situation changes on Saturday? And if he, and we can see him in a situation where he is looking to get this fight down to the ground more frequently? Well, I could I could see him trying to do that. Maybe not necessarily hoping to get the clean takedown because he like once I said once again he's never been just the cleanest takedown kind of guy. But the fact of the matter is maybe he could exhaust Israel Adesanya by constantly taking shots, trying to get the body lock takedowns pushing him up against the cage, going for trips. even Because a lot of times what people don't understand is as, as a striker or a mixed martial artist, and you probably wouldn't know this if you don't pay close attention or you haven't trained with guys before, this is what happens. I, I could spar a wrestler, and let's just say he's not getting takedowns on me, or let's just, in this imaginary world where I'm good enough to defend his takedowns. It's not that I can't technically defend his takedowns. Part of it is also my, my, my conditioning won't hold up. I'm not a full-time wrestler. So defending a couple takedowns, Fine. But as, as, if he continually chooses to chase him, and I'm in these clinches, and I'm in these tie-ups, that takes some of the spring out of my step, that, that wears up my cardio. So maybe the takedowns aren't a factor in round one or round two, but late in round three, they might be a factor. Round four, they might be a factor. And they don't even have to be enough of a factor where he's take, where I get taken down and I'm controlled. In, a, in an all-out mixed martial arts fight, you just have to take someone down, get into a position to submit them, get into a position to land a big shot on them while they're scrambling to get back up or they're trying to recover to get to a defensive guard or get to their knees to get back up. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to really control them on the ground. You just get them in a position where they're working outside of a pace that they want to, where that's where the defensive holes start opening up. And the thing with Israel Adesanya is a lot of guys can't get past his range. They can't get past his footwork. They can't get past his timing. So even when they get in on the entries, he's able to frame out, escape, sidestep, parry, dance away from them because they can't, they can't disrupt his rhythm. Like I said before, before, Yo Romero, I believe, can disrupt his rhythm and, and come up with some tricky entrances. And he doesn't have to get the takedown. He just got to push him up against his cage, clinch him a little bit, hang on his legs, hang on his body. So that when you get into that later round, you can get a takedown and maybe land a big shot. Or maybe he's exhausted and you can really just pound him out once you get to him. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know that Israel Zana can hold up under the duress of a high-paced fight 
with the striking and those grappling exchanges. Whether Romero gets him or not, we know Romero can go hard for five rounds in multiple ranges. A lot of Adesanya's longer fights haven't really been in any other range other than striking. Nobody's been able to take his shots well enough to get in on him, and nobody's had enough footwork and timing of their own to get the entry, a clean entry on him, where they could even get their hands on him and wear on him. I think Romero has both of those. It's just a matter of him navigating that distance and navigating uh, those kind of sniper-like shots from Adesanya that he uses to scare guys off. So in reference to the range aspect of what you've just been saying here, how would this fight compare to what we saw with Adesanya and Kelvin Gastelum, who's a, another you know decent MMA um, wrestler who looks to get the fight down to the ground when, when needed there? Do you think that that's a fair comparison, or, or do you not think that that's the type of fight that we'll see on Saturday? Is it going to be any difference between the two? Well, I've, I've never been impressed with Kelvin as a Kelvin is a wrestler. Uh, welterweight, his advantage was he was a big welterweight, so he could muscle guys. At middleweight, any advantage he has in wrestling comes from the fact that he's a natural welterweight, so he's a little bit quicker. I don't think he's that, that great a wrestler. Second of all, the same the, the problem that Kelvin has, and also the same problem that uh, Robert Whitaker had when he fought Adesanya, because he, he had enough wrestling to get, get in on Adesanya, is neither one of them had an effective way to close the distance. Every time they were coming in the distance they were just trying to explode through explode through ranges and that's fine but the fact of the matter is no matter how hard you explode and how fast you are a guy even a slow guy if they can last long enough can find their timing and land one or two shots against a guy to Adesanya who's a world-class athlete as well as a world-class striker he's going to find those spots and chip you up in them in the case of in the case of Kelvin Kelvin was so durable that Kelvin could take shot after shot knee after knee body shot head kick jab right hook left hook he could take all that and get in on get in on Azania and then have an inside fight and trade with him to force exchanges. Romero, I believe, is dur- if in theory Romero should be durable enough to do that. But the, the advantage Romero has is Romero knows how to faint with his feet. He knows how to faint with his upper body. He knows how to use the jab to kind of hide to hide his motion forward. He knows how to kind of faint, get people off balance, fake fake for the shot, come up over come up over over the top with a big right hand. He knows how to go with the right hand, fake for a shot. You sprawl on the shot, he comes up with a left hand and a right hook. He knows how to mix those things up. He's shown that level of class. So I believe that he has a better chance of doing it just because he has more setups. He's a better athlete. He's a bigger athlete, and he's a more durable athlete. Uh, Kelvin, Kelvin's a very good athlete, but he's not, not in the realm of flexibility, agility, and explosiveness of a guy like Romero. The only question with Romero is when he has those lows in his action, when he gets a little slow, when he gets a little heavy-footed, he starts resting, is he going to be able to navigate Adesanya then? Because Adesanya is a very, very accurate shot with his shots. And when he smells blood, he is very good at, at, at finishing guys. So that, that's going to really become the question. What happens when, when, when Romero slows down a step? What happens when Romero gets a little bit too heavy? He, can't, he, doesn't, he doesn't quite give up as fast from that takedown offense. He doesn't get off the fence as quick. A guy like Costa, he lunges, he swings wild, he loves it for power shot. Uh, even even Whitaker can get a little bit wild. Uh, Adesanya is a technician in there. He's surgically precise. And if you lay up against the cage or you get tired and try to bait him a little bit, he's not going to fall for those tricks quite as easily. And he's going to punish you for every one of them.
Sorry about that, Swan. So based on yeah. your breakdown there, um, how do you see this main event going down on Saturday? It's I, it's really hard for me to pick Romero just because in, in the biggest spots he's been in, he's always put up good fights, but he's never found a way to beat the best guys he's ever faced. And the fact he faced Robert Whitaker twice, that was the best guy he's faced, and he hasn't been able to beat him. He's beat Chris Weidman, but Weidman was more of a name. He beat Ruth Rockhold, but as good an athlete as Rockhold is, we've seen how flawed he is as a fighter. He beat a, a faded Leota Machida. You know, it, he's beaten some, he's beaten names, he's beaten good guys. But none of these guys were at their peak physically, and none of these guys were the standout best guy in the division at the time he beat them. So it's really hard to pick a guy who's never been able to flip the switch and, and get over the hump to execute well enough to win the title fight. And, and if you just go by what you've seen from Adesanya, he should, is between every fight, he usually, usually moves up two to three levels, three to five levels, and it's hard to imagine that he doesn't take another huge step forward in this fight. He's a guy who hasn't lost since he's been in the UFC, and he's he's essentially fought a higher level of opponent in each and every fight since he's been in here. And that's it's been quite amazing to see. So I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to go on the side of Adesanya. Um, I think he is a more poised striker. I think he's proven that he can fight at as high or a higher continuous pace than, than Yo Romero. I also believe that he, he's got all the momentum on his side, and he's c consistently improving, taking huge steps and leaps and bounds as a mixed martial artist. Yo Romero is pretty much who your, Yo Romero's been for the past two or, two or three years. He's sharpened a couple things. He's added a sprinkled in a couple things. But the Yo Romero we've seen for the past two years is essentially the Yo Romero we've, is, hasn't, hasn't really changed. I haven't seen a whole lot of additions to his game. I haven't seen a whole lot of wrinkles to his game. I can't. I can't imagine he's a better athlete than he was three years ago. I can't imagine his chin is as sturdy as it was three years ago. So just going by the logic of time in, the amount of wars he's been in, and the fact that I, I feel technically and strategically to a point of view, I, I feel like he's kind of plateaued. Uh, I probably have to, I'd probably have to say, logically, I have to say that it's going to be Irzara Adesanya. But I'm not a logical person. And I'm going to say that this time, Yo Romero gets it done. It's third time's a charm. He, even though he's been beaten by the best, he's never truly been just outclassed and dominated by anybody. And I think that his idiosyncratic striking and 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 quite frankly, I I think his 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 off rhythm striking and his durability is going to be is going to make the difference. I'm not saying Adesanya couldn't just pick him apart surgically, but he's never going to serve himself up in the same way that Robert Whitaker, Kelvin Gastelum, Derek Brunson did. He's got a lot more poise. He's got a lot more seasoning. He's got a lot more cage IQ. And I believe that's going to be the difference in this fight. All right. So we're going to put you down for picking um, Yoel Romero in this fight here. So no one else is, but we're going to put you down for picking him to win. Yeah, usually that's a good sign. Because every time no one else is, then all of a sudden good things happen. Okay, so let's move on to the co-main event where we have Ioannia Jacek challenging Riley Zhang for the women's strawweight title. Now, this is a fight, I feel like, A, a lot of people aren't really talking about it just because it is it, it features a champion that hasn't really gotten a lot of face time quite yet. But I think that that's going to change. Um, I wonder how this fight is really going to go down. Jang is going to be the smaller woman, but she's just so powerful and aggressive. And she's fighting someone in Jan Jacek who has shown durability issues in the past, but has looked better 
Um, she's looked good since the fights against Rose Namajunas. However, she was fighting against a smaller, less powerful Michelle Watterson. So let's talk about this fight here, Shawan. First and foremost, how do you see this fight looking for the women's 115-pound um, title? Well, first of all, uh, the champion, there's not a lot of not a lot of excitement behind this fight. The champion has only been in the UFC for what? Two, three fights? They've only headlined one card, and there's just not much of a buzz on the on the American side of it because she has hasn't been put in a position to build her brand. Now, in her country, this is huge. This is this is huge. This is news. This is halt everything. Let's see what she's about to do for the show. But as far as for the overall media of mixed martial arts, no, it's not a very big fight. Joanna has a win over Michelle Watterson, and I know you like Michelle, and Michelle's a gamer, and she's a vet, and she's a tough fighter. But that was a fight that nobody would have picked Michelle Watterson to win. That that wasn't a fight that showed that told us anything new about Joanna Jinjadri. It told us nothing new about her. And and it's hard to get past the fact that she was so soundly and completely beaten by Rose Namajunas, not once, not but twice. So a lot of the shine has been taken off of her. And a lot of people, even though they recognize how good she is and how good she's been, she hasn't seemed to be quite as dominant or quite as vicious as she has been in prior incantations during her time as a champion. So that, that's one thing. Um, as far as the fight's going... It really comes down to, in my opinion, if Joanna has addressed her issues in the mid-range. If Joanna's all the way out using her front kicks, head kicks, snap kicks to the face, long jab, long right hand, she can move around the cage, ride the perimeter, and, and pick you apart. When that's working for Joanna, she's fine. If Joanna can get inside, tie you up in the clinch, chop you up with knees and elbows after, after softening, tenderizing you with the long-range long weapons, she's also fine. But she's always had an issue, whether it's entering or exiting that mid-range. And she's been repeatedly clipped, dropped, or stunned as a result. Against, against um, Rose Namajunas, she was knocked out in the boxing range. In the second fight, every time that they stayed in a prolonged exchanges in the boxing range, she was just getting lit up by Rose Namajunas. She got dropped by Carolina Kovacavich in, the, in that mid-range. And even against Tisha Torres in spots, Tisha Torres was able to get some work done with her when she was able to off-balance her and attack her in that mid-range. It's something she doesn't seem to have a skill set to adjust, whether parries, slips, tie-ups, or using or using her weapons to safely exit or safely enter, enter the range. It seems like she hasn't got any defensive awareness in there. She either just ties up for the clinch really quickly, or she tries to exit and get right back out on the long range. And against this opponent, that, that's, that's a destinance, because I don't believe that Joanna's ever been the most durable fighter, because if you really think about it, you look at her past fight, she wasn't taking a lot of punishment, not from girls who could really hit hard. She took some shots from Claudia Cadelia, but it wasn't like Claudia was teeing off on her. She was just outworking Claudia so much. A lot of it was one-way traffic. Against Rose Namajunas, every time Rose touched her, it looked like Rose hurt her. Against Valentina Shevchenko, when Valentina put a shot on her, it stopped her in her tracks. I don't think that Joanna's frail, but I don't think she's as durable as she used to be, and I don't ever believe she had a world-class chin in the first place. So, so when she gets into this range, which is hard for her to avoid because she doesn't have the awareness to get out of it, she has problems. And against this opponent, she could pay a very high price when she gets in that range because in, in, in this case, she can't use the clinch to bail herself out. This girl is physically strong enough to neutralize her in the clinch and has enough of her own clinch skills to at least make Joanna work. Joanna's not going to have one-way traffic when she gets into the clinch, that's a safety zone for her, where she can rest, 
kind of play around, wear you down, lean on you, pull on you, push you around, chop you up. She's not going to be able to do that. In the clinch, she's going to have to pay a price to be in the clinch. The only place she has a clear advantage is at long range, and I don't know that she hits hard enough, nor do I know that under extreme duress that her foot works good enough to get away from somebody and avoid the middle, avoid that mid-range. And if she can't avoid the mid-range, I don't see how she wins this fight. As good as she is, I don't see how she wins this fight. So what would a victory mean for Wiley Zhang, especially being that she is the face almost of um, Chinese MMA right now. What would this victory mean for her and her um, career? Well, it would it would legitimize her a little bit. I mean, beating Andrade was impressive, but the fact of the matter is Andrade is a terrible technical fighter. She's a fighter whose exclusive whole game is built on her ability of being a better athlete, and her whole game is built on her being super durable. She's like a a an MMA version of Deontay Wilder has a lot of huge amounts of physical ability, but when she's not able to pressure you and she's not, you're not fighting scared of her, the holes start becoming very wide in her game. So beating her didn't really prove anything. It proved that Wiley Zhang is powerful. It proved that she's got some poise in the pocket and in the clinch. It proved that she has physicality that was able to allow her to blunt the pressure Andrade gave her and punish her. But it didn't really show all the skills or show the uh, width of skill. It showed some depth of skill. It didn't show enough width of skill. Beating someone like Joanna, even the faded Joanna, still carries some merit. And if she can stop her, it carries some weight because then it might possibly set up a fight with Valentina Shenchenko down the line because she can say, I fought the same girl and I fought her at the weight she's supposed to be at and I stopped her. You fought her at a weight moving up and all you did was take her down and control her and kind of score points. You, you, you didn't do the damage that I did. So beating someone like Joanna, Joanna opens doors as far as moving up a weight class or, or maybe facing a name like Shevchenko. As far as for her weight division, I don't know what it does for her because there's not a lot of big names down there. And to be, be quite honest, there's not a lot of interesting fights outside of a possible Rose Nam Yunus fight, maybe Jessica Andrade. I don't want to see see her against uh, see her against um, Michelle Watterson. I don't want to see that fight. I don't really want to see her against Carla Esparza outside of it just being a title fight and defense. Those those aren't matchups seen to play out well for the for the B side of it. So this fight is very important because it legitimizes her and it opens the door for a potential fight with Valentina Shevchenko, which is what she really wants. That's what she asked for before anything else, the fight with Shevchenko. So if she wants that fight badly and then she can win this in impressive fashion, she might be able to get it. I, I, I don't know that it happens, but if she does, she might get it sooner than later. So let me ask you about that fight, the one with Shevchenko. How do you see that fight going if that is something we eventually get? I don't, I don't know because I haven't seen enough. I haven't seen enough of her. It's when she fought Tisha Torres, she won, but it wasn't like she just bowled her over. And even against Andrade, that was a good win. But Andrade gives you openings, and Andrade has so many holes as far as her footwork, her setup, her defense, and even her offense is so cavemanish. It's really hard to gauge anything because she was able to physically compete with Andrade, which is what caused Andrade to fight. Shevchenko is used to battling around with Bantamweight. So I can't, I can't believe Wiley Zhang is going to be bullying her. I can't believe that she hits harder than, than uh, Amanda Nunes. I can't believe she's more explosive than Amanda Nunes. I can't believe she's, she's physically stronger than Amanda Nunes. And I've seen Valentina get up, from, get up when Nunes is taking her down. I've seen Nunes push her against the cage, and I've seen Valentina get off the cage against her. I've seen her have Nunes teeing off on her, Valentina hang on through it, persevere, 
then come back and start putting a whooping on Nunes. And Nunes is pretty much now the par excellence as far as the fighter, women's fighters. So it's very hard for me to pick this manner that, that, that Shevchenko loses because physically she should be the bigger, stronger fighter. As far as durability, she's shown the better chin. She's taken bigger shots from, from bigger fighters, from, from basically KO artist fighters. And as good as Shevchenko is in the mid-range and with her combinations and in the clinch, the fact of the matter is she is an aggressive fighter, and aggressive fighters are always going to have a problem with somebody who is a world-class athlete and a very accurate, very powerful counter-striker. Counter not saying you can't outwork Valentina, not saying you can't rough her up a little bit. Valentina has holes, but it seems like stylistically, based on what I've seen, this would be a match that favors her. It, 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 when you look at it in paper, until, until I see something more from her, I can't say that she's really an exciting matchup for Valentina outside the fact that she's such a physical dynamo and she seems to have such good cardio. That, that's really what would allow... She's willing to take punishment. She's willing to walk through punishment and she's willing. She's looking to do damage, which Valentina's last three opponents haven't been looking to do. That's what makes it interesting. But as far as technically what I see on paper, it, it doesn't seem like a very good matchup. And I, I have to see something different from, from Wiley Zhang to to change my opinion on that right now. Right now, it, it doesn't, doesn't seem like an interesting matchup. Okay. All right. No problem there. Um, what else stands out to you um, on this card on Saturday? For me, it was um, Rodolfo Vieira getting his next fight. You know, he is a longtime Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. He's 30 years old, even though he looks 45. Uh, he is a highly, highly, highly skilled and competent grappler. Probably, again, one of the best to step into the octagon. Uh, he is a former ADCC champion. I would probably still... He has more titles than a um, Damian Maya, but we know how Maya's been able to apply his grappling at the highest of levels. If these two were to have a grappling match, I think that Hodolfo would, would win if it was a strictly grappling match, but that's neither here nor there because we're talking about mixed martial arts. But he's getting his second fight in the UFC on Saturday, and uh, I cannot pronounce the guy's name that he's fighting. Let me double-check again. He's fighting against... Um, I can't say this guy's name. Uh, Sarah uh, Sa Safarov. This is the last name, but I expect a submission victory for Hodolfo as well. But other than this, man, uh, Shawan, tell me what you're looking forward to this weekend. I guess I was looking forward to seeing how how Sean O'Malley looks. You know, before prior to his suspension, he was pretty much one of the biggest stars coming off the contender. He showed a guy who had who seemed to have world class athleticism. He seemed to have a natural IQ for fighting. He was picking up on all the little intricacies and showed the heart, the conditioning the uh, aggression, and, and, a, and a burgeoning offensive skill set. The defense wasn't quite there to my liking, but the offense was there. And he seemed like he was getting poised to go on a run. After this extensive time being out of the octagon, he still seemed to have a good fan base. I think that UFC still believes in him, but it's interesting to see if during this downtime he really took the time to reassess his game and diversify his game and then refine the fundamentals to kind of add that depth to his skill because before I thought I called him some guy who knew how to fight, who could fight, but didn't know how to fight as far as controlling the pace, using the smart shots to slow an opponent down, not relying on volume and athleticism to just overwhelm guys, you know, like forcing that, he would force the fast pace and just 
bless you with athleticism and creativity, which is fine until you face a guy who's got enough seasoning and poise that he can ride that out and then late in the fight start taking it to you. So it's interesting. I'm interested to see how much he's grown, how much he's stayed, stayed a student of the game, and if he's really added layers, not just to his offense, but more importantly to his defense, and more importantly to the approach he has to the game. That's what I'm hoping to see. Hoping to see some some mental and technical growth in him. Because if he shows those things, he could really be a player in the division. But if he's still coming back with, I'm just athletic and I'm creative and I'm funky and I'm different and I'm unique, that only takes you so far. There's too many good athletes in his division for him to get by on just being a tricky guy with esoteric striking technique. That's not going to cut it. He's going to have to really develop the meat and potatoes of his game and learn to fight with poise and controlled aggression, not just unbridled creativity and volume. So that that's the big thing I'm really looking to see. That's something I'm very interested in seeing. Awesome there, sir. Awesome. So um, what do you think will be the uh, biggest story coming out of USC 245, or 248, excuse me, on Saturday? Um, if I assign you, if I, I mean, if I assign you loses, that'll be the biggest story. Third time's a charm for Romero. He beat the guy who essentially is laid waste to the middleweight division in less than a year. Um, even even if uh, Joanna upsets upsets um, Wiley Zhang, that that would be overshadowed by uh, by uh, a Romero win by far. Um, I pretty much say the biggest story is going to be whoever wins the fight. If Adesanya wins it, he he's literally been on one of the greatest runs in UFC history. When you, you look at class of opponent, styles of opponents. And the the differences as far as the I mean he's fought sim, he's basically fought the same version of guys for the most part a bunch of wrestle boxers that he's outstruck and guys who can't really wrestle effectively unless they get their striking going but the fact of the matter is he's beaten such a high caliber of opponent one after the other after the other after the other I I can't think of too many runs that are that are comparable to this maybe uh, John Jones but John Jones was beating up on a lot of guys who were faded champions. So um, if Adesanya wins, this is one of the greatest runs you'll ever see in mixed martial arts history, especially from a guy who, who really hadn't competed at this level. And if Romero wins, it's a big story because it's third time's a charm, and he's beating the guy who essentially walked through the whole division and was basically poised to be the name guy at the division. Awesome there, sir. So... Let's get ready to move on to our second topic of the day. And I want to look back to uh, UFC, hold on one second, let me write down my time code, UFC um, Norfolk, which was this past Saturday. Now, this was a decent card from what I remember seeing. Uh, to be honest, from what I remember seeing, it was a long-ass weekend. However, I want to talk about four fights on this card, four main ones. Of course, we have the main event. We have the main and the co-main event, but we also have Megan Anderson's fight and the Magomed Ansa and Ankalev fight versus Ian Kutalaba. Ian Kutalaba. So I want to talk about those four fights. Uh, if there's anything else, of course, we can get to that when, um, if you want to bring anything else up. But let's start with this main event here, where we saw two things happen. Davison Figueroa. Um, Figueredo, excuse me, wins via TKO, stopping Joseph Benavidez in the second round. Now, the day before that, he missed weight. So this essentially is no longer a title fight for him. It's an, it's an exhibition for all lack of, lack of better terms. So he goes out there and he stops 
beefcake. Let's start there. Does his victory and his losing or missing weight the day before basically nullify the flyweight division and put them in a worse position than they were coming into this fight on Saturday? I believe so. I mean, the flyweight division was hanging out by a thread, and basically this whole fight was a setup for Joseph Benavidez to get the title wrapped around his waist. I mean, I know he's won. I know he's one of the best guys. But the fact of the matter is, this, this is what it was for. This this was like a, uh, you served the company very well. Here, here's your here's your gold watch. They were serving him up an opportunity to win the belt. And then he loses it. He loses the belt. And he loses it against a guy who didn't make weight. Also a guy who's not a name. And a guy who doesn't really, he's not a name. He doesn't have any popularity. I mean, this was a very high risk in a sense, high-reward fight because it's for a title, but he's fighting a guy who nobody knows, a guy who's dangerous, but isn't very popular, and a guy who didn't make weight. This is, if I was him, to be quite honest, I, I wouldn't, if he didn't make weight, I wouldn't have taken the fight. I don't care if it's for a title. I'm not fighting this dude. Too much at stake. Too much at stake for me to be fighting a guy who's going to be fresher than me, who, who basically decided, what he, I think he decided not to try to make weight. It's just, it's just too many variables. And it's too many cards stacked against me. If I'm Joe B, I don't, I don't take this fight. I'm like, we got to figure out something else. We got to figure out something else. Something, there needs to be a backup because this is, it's just an unfair advantage this guy has. And this guy's already big for the weight class. So you have a big, strong, physical guy. And what does he do? He basically imposes his will through phys- phys- his physicality, his size, and his strength, and chops down. Benavides. It wasn't like he just outskilled him. He took him down with a quick laser quick takedown and transitioned to his back and submitted him. Or he's running a striking on him. He, he basically bullied him. He basically walked him down and bullied him. And I don't know that if he had to make weight, if he would have been capable of, capable of doing that. One thing Joseph Benavides has always been able to do is keep a high pace while punishing opponents. And if, you're make, if you have to make weight or you have a tough weight, class, weight cut, how likely are you to walk down somebody like Joseph Benavides? I mean, the way Benavidez's output goes, I really see that hard to um, fathom if you're exasperated because you basically um, had to cut so much weight. Yeah, and I like Joseph Benavidez. I I think he's a very good fighter. He's very skilled. But I've been telling people, watching him in the past couple years, he's not nearly as quick or dynamic as he used to be. He's looked a little less sharp. And to me, he doesn't look like he absorbs punishment nearly as well as he used to. But the thing about it is he's got all that veteran experience. He's faced every sort of style. And if you if you're if he's able to land the shots he wants to land and, and maintain the pace and kind of keep the keep moving around the ring, he's essentially gonna outclass anybody based just on experience, knowing tricks of the trade and having superior cardio and knowing what's coming at him. Against this guy, because that guy didn't cut weight, he was a little bit bigger, he's a little bit fresher. I believe this I believe if Joseph Benavidez, that guy was forced to make weight or at least forced to try to make weight. I believe those body shots Benavides hit him with would have backed him up. I believe those single shots Benavides hit him with would have backed him up. And I don't think he would have been as bold or as aggressive or consistent with his pressure. But I think with the extra weight and being a little bit fresher, I think he was able to walk through some of those shots and he was able to to initiate and survive in exchanges. But if he had to make that weight, I don't think he would have been able to survive it. So it changes the nature of the fight. It changes the tone of the fight because not how you know used to fight. Not making that extra weight gives you a little bit more energy. The other guy's already made weight. He's already put his body through hell, and now he's trying to recover. Like they say, you're trying to recover and get back to maximum capacity. This dude didn't do half the damage to his body. 
and his recovery is even shorter. And a lot of his success is based on his physicality and strength. And now he's got a little bit, what, another 15% more kicking in? I mean, if anybody thinks that doesn't make a difference, it, it's going to. Even against an elite guy, it's going to make a difference. And I think, I think that's what made the difference in this fight. Also, if you add in some of the wear and tear on Joe, Joseph Benavides, and this is Joseph Benavides from two years ago, he, way cut or not, he smokes this guy. But it's not the Joseph Benavides from a couple years ago. This is an older and less durable Joseph Benavides. And when he really tasted the power, he, he was finished. And, and that's basically the story of the fight. I know he got hit in the eye of the head, but, but the fact of the matter is that guy, I don't believe, would have been as bold pressuring if he didn't have that extra weight and that extra energy from not making the weight cut. Basically just deciding I'm not going to make it. He made a business decision. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to punish my body anymore. I'm not going to try. I'm just going to take the hit financially because a win over Joseph Benavidez either guarantees me a rematch or essentially adds more name value, to, more cachet to my name. If I stay in the UFC or I go somewhere else. That's a good name to have on your resume. By stoppage, by stoppage too, how many guys can say they stopped Joseph Benavidez? Like two? Uh, listen, that is a great question. Um, let's look. I, I think it's just him and DJ now. Uh, yep. So, you, so DJ and, and Davidson. He, he's, a, he's an all, he's an all-time great. He's only been stopped by two people. The all-time great of the weight class and me. That, that's something you can hang your hat on for a long time. Money or not, that's something you can hang your hat on. Okay, so let's talk about Benavidez now. This is his fourth title shot that he's fallen short on. Dominic uh, Cruz, two against DJ, and one against Figueredo here. What's next for him? Where does he go from here? Because he, I can never see him fighting for another title unless they're like some somebody misses out on a weight cut, somebody gets injured last minute and steps in. What's next for him? You saw some of the heartbreak in that he's kind of displayed since then, talking about what the situation has done for him, what do you see is next for him as a Team Alpha Male fighter? Well, is he still a Team Alpha Male fighter, though? I think so. That's how. That's what he was listed. Oh, I thought he left. I didn't know he was still with them. Hmm. Uh, I, know, well, I know he's been training outside of there, but I think he's still out on the surface level uh, with Team Alpha Male. My, my big thing with him is I, I think legitimately you could run the fight back because the guy did not make weight. And, and there's, as I said, I, I, I believe that that lack of weight cutting and that extra energy made a difference in how he approached the fight and how he fought. So you could make that, you could make that legitimately because who else is there? I mean, really, who else is there who's in the stone's throw of the title fight? Who else is within the stone throw of the title fight that anybody would care about? Because it's not just winning the belt. It's doing so in a manner or having enough cachet to make, make it worth the UFC's while to keep that division or to make an interesting fight for that division for the guy who was also the champion who would be Henry Cejudo. Um, there's nobody else who that, that fight lines up well with except for Joseph Benavides in the division. So if he's not going to fight for the belt again or he's not going to be considered for it, I, I almost don't see the point of the division. Not because I want those guys out of, out of it because I, don't, I uh, don't believe in them or I don't think they're quality fighters. I just don't think the UFC sees any money signs in them. So I don't know that the UFC is committed to it. They've already gotten, basically gotten rid of it once before, and I feel like this was kind of the chance for the division to be saved again by having Benavidez get the title. So I, I really believe that if Benavidez, Benavidez might get a matchup, a rematch, 
I think they could go that route. Outside of that, I don't, I don't know what he does. I don't know that he wants to go at 35 at this stage of his career. I don't know that it's in his best interest. And if I don't know that he wants to go through another two or three, four fights just to attempt to get a title fight at flyweight. And quite frankly, quite frank, I don't think the UFC would give him another two or three, four fights to get another shot at flyweight. I just don't think they, they back up the division or support division very much. Do you think that his time at the UFC is coming to an end? Is he the next person we could see pop up in Ryzen or in Bellator? I mean, if I was him, to a certain degree, if they, if they end the division, I don't see why he wouldn't go. And, and I mean, there's, there's places he could make money and he could go to the PFL. They would love to have him. He could go to Bellator. They would love to have him. He go to Ryzen. He has options. Even at this stage of his career, he's still no worse than what? Top three in the world? Even at this stage... It, Losing a step, he's still top three, maybe at worst top four in the world. So if he wants to pursue fighting and still have a chance to get a belt, there's opportunities for him in Risen. There's opportunities in Bellator. There's opportunities in PFL. But the question is, how important is it if they keep the division here? How important is it? How important is it for him to have a UFC belt on his resume? Because if he just wants to make money, he can make more money other places through sponsorships and, and all the goodwill he's accrued over over the life of his career. Uh, if he wants to have that UFC belt on his and the resume, then yeah, he stays here and tries to bang it out for the flyweight, or he tries to move him to 135 and see what he can get done there. But as far as options, he still has a ton of options. He's one of the most well-known guys, maybe not super popular, but super well-known, and still performing at an elite level. I I can't imagine an organization that wouldn't want him. Good thoughts there, sir. True that. Um, what do you do? We see another flyweight title fight made, or is this it? Is this the end of this? Um, Weight class. I think if they might give a rematch to Joseph, maybe that you see one. I just don't. Well, as good as the fights are, if I'm looking at the UFC from a casual point of view, I don't know who is interesting enough to get Henry Cejudo to come back to the division, and I don't know who the hell else is in the division who will fight who's interesting enough to get the UFC behind it. I mean, it took Joseph Benavidez to be involved in this for this fight to be made because this would have been anybody else. If Joseph Benavidez was on a three-fight losing streak. They wouldn't have a title fight for flyweight. There's no way. Nobody cares about enough of those guys on, on a grand scale to invest in the fight. Joseph Benavides, the whole story the whole time was Joseph Benavides finally getting his title. No, nobody hardly even mentioned the other guy. So I, I really don't know. I really don't know. If he doesn't get some kind of rematch, I really don't know. Okay. And let's talk about the co-main event. Actually, let's, let's not talk about it that way. Let's talk about the women's featherweight picture here. Because Amanda Nunez made it pretty clear that she is looking at UFC Norfolk to determine who is her next challenger. She's made it um, very, very, very clear, again, that she depends on defending the featherweight title next at 145 pounds. Uh, and that shows her ability to be um, a better champ champ than majority of all, all of the men's double champions that, that we've seen so far. What is that? I mean, none of them have defended the uh, titles. That automatically, I, I, she I, automatically wins there. I, I know that, but it's like, who are you defending it against, though? It doesn't matter. It, see, and that's, and that, that is where I struggle with the conversation about um, the, like these, these types of conversations. People detract from Demetrius Johnson because of he because of the way he ran through the flyweight division for years, six years as champion. But at the same time, Valentina Shevchenko is lauded as the greatest fighter, greatest women's fighter of all time, just because she's smoking these women at 125 who don't have any business being in the 
cage with her. So it really oh, depends. I, I agree. I agree with you, but I I agree with you. I think the old, I I agree with you 100%. I I didn't have a problem with DJ. I I thought DJ didn't do enough of a job selling his fights, and that's what kind of hurt him. He wanted to be a straight up guy, and that's cool, but nobody liked that. He didn't want to do the dog and pony show. Fine, but that affects the bottom line. That affects how you're perceived. You don't want to do the show, that's part of the job. And, And that's just the way it is. This is sports entertainment. This is like WWE. This isn't just a sport, this is sports entertainment. So he didn't want to be entertaining. Who That's, didn't want to be? Who who didn't? DJ. He didn't want to be entertaining in and outside the cage. He wanted to just do his job and go about his business. He wanted me to see, care about a. He wanted me to care about a fight when he just got done saying it's just another day at the office. Why the hell am I excited about it if the guy's fighting it ain't inside? You ain't excited because he's the, the greatest fighter of all time. Like you, I, and I'm not saying he is, but at, at, when he was stopping through people uh, all throughout the UFC, he was, and it. What what made it so difficult is that the fact that they just were not promoting him in the way that he should have been promoted. This dude, not only was he beating contender after contender, he was highlight reeling guys left and right. The stuff that if, who who was the 170 champion at at the time, whoever was the welterweight champion at the time, if they were doing the stuff that DJ was doing, flying arm bars, um, arm barring people with a minute left, taking world champion um, jujitsu players, taking them down and submitting them left and right, if they were doing the same thing that he was doing, the UFC would have talked about them totally different, regardless of what the fighter was saying. The UFC failed that man through and through. Oh, I didn't think they did him any favors. I'm still always going to say he could have done himself some more favor. He, there's a way he wants to carry himself. He's like Andre Ward. I want to do my business. I want to carry myself a class. I'm not embarrassed. That's cool. That's all well and good. People don't pay to see that. People, people want people want the interesting. They want the conflict. They want the trash talk. They. They want that, even as they, as much as they say they're sick of it, they still, they, they still click to see it. They still click to see it. They, they want a larger than life personality. The skills, the skills were larger than life. His personality wasn't. And I always make the Andre Ward comparison. Andre Ward is one of the best fighters of all time. Nobody cared until he fought certain people because his, he couldn't, he, he couldn't generate interest. He just couldn't. And if you can't generate interest in your group, it's hard for me to blame somebody else when you can't even generate art interest in your group. You can't get a million of your race or, or your social group to buy into you. It's hard for me to blame the other company because they can't bring people outside of your scope in. You can't even bring your people in. Don't blame me because I can't bring people who, who don't like, I can't turn people who don't like you into fans. You can't even turn your, you, you can't even bring enough fans to move the needle. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's the way it is. Okay. Okay, I agree with you there. But let's go back to talking about, um, Amanda Nunez, yes. She's fighting the people that are put in front of her. And that's up to the UFC to build them to build them as credible threats to Amanda Nunez, who she then goes out there and dispatches. Yes, at 35, I mean, she's beaten... Her resume speaks for herself. She's beaten every person that's ever been a champion at 135 and 145 pounds. That, like that resume right there by itself says it says it all. She's defeated every single person that's ever been a champion. So whoever's lined up against her next, yes, it may seem like a step down because there isn't anyone else who's been a champion at that point in time. But you, I want to watch because I want to see how long she can keep this going. How long can she keep defending both belts? 
How long can she keep staying at a high level? And who's going to be the person to knock her off of the pedestal? Because it's going to happen. It happens to everybody. The only person to get out of there with, with, with um, the only person to carry their own shield out of there so far is George St. Pierre. No one else has been able to do it. So that is what interests me when it comes to um, Amanda Nunez and she trying to figure out who she's going to fight next. And another thing is that she's making it very clear that she wants to take on the top contenders. She's not out here calling out people coming off of a loss. She's not out here calling out people who who fight one once or, or twice a year. She's looking at people who are active, people ranked in the top two to three, and people who are impressing her in, in, a, in a way that makes them an intriguing fight for her. Oh, no, I, that I do respect that. Her, her resume is is very legitimate and she is trying to find the best opportunities out there for her at, at featherweight the problem is featherweight division outside of cyborg really doesn't exist and and these two girls they have i already know who i'd rather see her fight as far as the competitiveness of the fight i'd rather see her fight felicia spencer spencer's shown a better chin spencer's shown a better all-round skill set and um and as, as much as megan anderson has a look and she has an interesting storyline and she's a striker. The fact of the matter is, um, none of those things is on a level well enough where I would justify her fighting for the belt. I mean, she's only what is she two and she's she had the disqualification. No, that counted as a knockout over Kat Zingano. She lost to Spencer. She got out grappled by Holly Holm, and she beat Kat Zingano, and she beat this girl. She's two and two. It's the most unimpressive two and two in the history of mixed martial arts. She beat a girl who should not have been in there with her, and then she beat she beat. Kat Zagano because she because Kat Zagano is an idiot. All Kat Zagano had to do was take her down and she would have finished her. But instead, Kat Zagano decided I'm going to be a distance kickboxer. Her kickboxing is, is quite awful, first of all, as is her footwork and her defense, which is why she got kicked in the face in the first place. Literally, all she had to do was do the same thing Kat Zagano always, always does: rush out, jump on her, and she would have beat Megan Anderson. But for some reason, she didn't do that. I, I I like Anderson. I like her style. I like her trash talk. But Anderson hasn't shown anything near being world-class. She's shown nothing, nothing at all as far as being a world Her ground, her ground game is worse than Jermaine Durandamy. That's saying something. So, let's talk about Anderson first. My pick of the two would be Felicia Spencer just because she has that win over Anderson. Clear. But there's something about Anderson that screams star power to me. Um, maybe it's her look. And maybe it's the fact that so many people have shown that they are invested in her for one reason or another. What is it about Anderson that stands out uh, to so many people? And for those of our listeners who uh, enjoy professional wrestling as well, I'll compare her to Rhea Ripley, who's someone that is she's 23 years old right now. She's taking the professional wrestling industry by storm because she's so young and so many people are like invested in her look, her character her abilities in, in, in the ring. She's kind of like the total package and people are like, man, where would she be in 10 years? Megan Anderson may not have that youth, but I think she had at one point in time, she had that same type of interest in her, which may have dwindled since then. What are your thoughts about that? Is Anderson a star? Is she someone that if she gets a big win, if she gets the knockout that everyone's just been, been waiting for her to get, does she become a major star in MMA, or is she just a, um, or is she just smoking mirrors right now? 
I think she's just smoking mirrors. I mean, I can't. This I haven't kept up with wrestling as well as I should be. But when you mentioned this girl, you said she was a total package, which means she's got a look, she's got a storyline, she can talk on the microphone, and she can actually perform in the ring. That's the total package. Megan Anderson has never been the total package. She's got a look. She's got an interesting, if somewhat, depending on who you talk to, sorted storyline. But she's not a great athlete. She's she's a competent striker. I wouldn't say great, and she can't wrestle or she can't wrestle or grapple. I mean, maybe she can individually outside the sport, but she hasn't shown any any sense of that in any fight she's been in. She's shown none of that, none of it at all. So she's not she's not the total package. It's basically they're picking on her because she's attractive. She's got a, she's attractive for one. She has a look, and she she also has the look of a fighter. She hasn't done anything, even when she was winning, that says, this girl is a potential superstar. Her striking is technically okay. Defensively, she's not really great. Offensively, I mean, she was fighting some pretty subpar fighters. And um, I will say that. She was fighting some girls who weren't quite elite as far as their athleticism and their overall skill and, and Invicta. And she wasn't knocking them out. She wasn't just dominating them. She was beating them. But she wasn't just having her way left and right with anybody. She wasn't like cyborging these girls. She wasn't doing what Amanda Nunes is doing to girls. She was in, in somewhat competitive fights that she just won off the fact that she's a better athlete and a better striker. She didn't. I never thought she was a star. I never thought she was UFC quality. But I knew that given her look and her style and how she comes across, that she would get an opportunity. The division's too thin to not give her one. But I, I don't think it's anything outside of a look and outside of people thinking that she had this potential that they think she has. And if for some reason she fought Amanda Nunes and beat her, that wouldn't convince me that she was a great fighter. That would just convince me that Amanda Nunes was either declining very badly or horribly overrated. Because based purely on skills and athleticism, there should be no way, no way that Megan Anderson beats Nunes. She doesn't hit hard enough. She's not a good enough wrestler or grappler. She's not a good enough athlete. and She doesn't have a good enough chin. There, there's really no way that she should beat her at all. So and then fact, let's talk if, about... Right. Megan Anderson beats her. If Megan Anderson beats her, that is a damning loss to her. That calls her whole whole career into question. I mean, in, in real reality, it wouldn't, but it'd be, it'd be hard to explain that. It would be hard to explain how the girl who got out-wrestled by Holly Holm and submitted by Felicia Spencer somehow knocked you out. You can land a shot anywhere. No. This would be Matt Sarah, George St. Pierre levels of upset. And it'd be worse it'd be even work better than that because Megan Anderson isn't half the fighter that Matt Sarah was when he fought he fought George St. Pierre. It, it would just be cataclysmic. Her, her whole resume would have to be called into question. Her whole resume would have to be called into question losing to Megan Anderson. So then let's talk about Felicia Spencer then because I'm going to guess that you and I are on the same page with she being next in line to fight the um, champion after her performance on Saturday. Talk to me about that fight there and how do you see that being different than the Megan Anderson fight, if at all? Well, so what makes it different is that, is that Felicia Spencer has shown a variety of skills. She's not a great wrestler, but she's shown, she's shown the ability to apply offensive wrestling She's a better grappler than wrestler, but she's shown the ability to show defensive grappling skills, um, offensive grappling skills, and counter grappling skills. Her striking is pretty wild and unrefined, but she's, she's shown a good chin. She's shown an ability to fight at pace. She's shown an ability to bite down and win or engage in extended exchanges with big hitters. So she's, she's, 
she's shown more skills than Megan Anderson, definitely more defensive skills than Megan Anderson, and she's shown the ability to fight through adversity better than Megan Anderson. Because the two instances when Megan Anderson was had faced adversity, she she never was able to come back against Holly Holm once the fight went went away from the way she wanted it to go. And against Felicia Spencer, as soon as she was put in a bad spot, she was almost immediately finished. So it's just based off of who's shown more against a better class of opponent. The only world, only I guess world class opponent Felicia Spencer has faced would be would be Cyborg, and she put up a competitive fight. It was one sided. It was a clear win for Cyborg, but she put up a fight. She had some moments in there, and she threatened. She attempted to threaten Cyborg in more than one way. With Megan Anderson, it's pretty much a straight up kickboxing match. She can't grapple with Nunez. She can't wrestle with Nunez. It's pretty well. Pretty much one-way traffic in those two realms. At least Felicia Spencer has an approach and a skill set where you could think that, you know, maybe she can get a submission from the bottom. Maybe she can create a scramble and get on top. Maybe she's shown that she's durable and she has a good, she she has a big heart. She's mentally strong. Maybe she can hang around long enough for Nunes to gas and then she can pull something out and get a submission late. But once again, it'd be an uphill battle. Once again, you'd have to favor Nunes. But if you wanted some, a fighter who you could at least make a justifiable explanation why and how she could win, Spencer's the only one who's shown anything that says that she could she she could pull that fight off. Who do you think gets it if you had to pick one name or the other? Who 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 gets the fight? I want to say Spencer gets it. I really want to say Spencer, but I feel like they're just going to try to force Megan Anderson down. I mean, they're going to put Megan Anderson in with Cyborg when she first got here, and there's no reason for that fight in the first place. I feel like they're just going to force Megan Anderson down. I, I, I wanted to be Spencer. I'd be impressed if they went with Spencer, but given the knockout that Megan Anderson had, given the fact that she has a look, she has a fan base, and she's all over social media, I can't imagine they don't give it to Spencer. Yeah, give it to, give it to uh, Anderson. All right, um, let's talk about the third fight, or the fourth fight, actually, I wanted to talk about on this card, the only other one, the Antalev versus Kutalaba fight, where everyone's seen it, everyone's seen the clip, where Kutalaba, he was clearly rocked, he's claiming he wasn't as hurt as he was, that he was trying to do some rope-a-dope type of stuff, but Kevin, Kevin McDonald stepped in, called the fight at 38 seconds, and Kutalaba nearly lost it. He looked like he wanted to drop kick um, McDonald and like beat his ass right there on the spot, but thankfully, he held it together and he did not. What are your thoughts about this here, Shawan? Do you think Kutalaba was playing around and thinking like he was hurt? Do you think he was really hurt, and is this a bad stoppage? It was a bad stoppage. You want to make sure when the, you're stopping the fight, you always want to stop it one shot earlier, the one shot late. But they, he was, A, still swinging back. And even if he was really hurt, he, he was just still intelligently defending himself by swinging back. And he was landing. It's hard to stop a fight when both guys are landing and then say that this guy needs to be saved when he's still... It's one thing when he's taking five, six, seven unanswered shots and he's just covering up. He's not firing back or he's hurt and he's not firing back. But when he's still firing back and he's landing shots, it's really hard for me to justify you stopping the fight, for one. For two... Um, I do believe Kudaleva was trying to do a bit of a rope. I think he was hurt, but I also think he was trying to put on a little bit of a show, hoping the guy would kind of rush in there. We've seen Yo Romero do it. We've seen Frank Mir try to do it a little bit. So it's not something that the guys don't do. I just think anytime you do something like that, you pretend like you're hurt. You scream out when you get a submission, trying to get the guy to maybe jump over, commit to it, or maybe let go because he thinks that the ref's going to stop it. 
anytime you try to play that game, that's a tightrope act because you're hoping that you have a, a referee who understands the fight game well enough and is going to give you either understands the fight game well enough or is going to give you the benefit of the doubt and allow the fight to go when it seems like it's the show the door is about to be closed on you. And in this case, he had a, a he had a ref who didn't have either one of those things. He he didn't see the fight that way, and he wasn't going to let him work out of a bad spot. He was just going to call the fight the way it was. So, and I, I, I blame the ref because it was a bad stoppage. But once again, anytime you do any sort of thing where you're trying to, you know, like when guys do the walk, the, the walk off knockout, sometimes the ref calls it. Or just like when Anderson Silva tried it with Michael Bisping and he ran up on the cage, sometimes the ref lets the fight go. And now you've given the guy a chance to recover, get his wits about him, and now you've got to go against the guy when you have him dead to right. In this case, the guy took a shot. He tried to he tried to play the game, and it backfired on him. And that's I can't I, as much as I can blame the ref for not not doing his job. The fact of the matter is, anytime you try something like that, you're taking a big risk. And when you're talking about your career, and you're talking about money you can make, and you're talking about moving up in rankings, I don't know how you, I don't know how you try to pull something like that this early in a fight. I just don't know. It's a really risky proposition, I think. And I, I think he just overplayed his hand. So do we get a rematch or do we just let this guy's foolishness cost him and uh, we, we move forward? Do you, and I, also, I think, before you answer that, do you, what do you think about the appeal that's going to go through? Because I believe they've already filed for an, an appeal. Me personally, I, I always think filing for an appeal is stupid because I can't think of any that's ever won. I think they were uh, talking about talking to the uh, commission in maybe Texas. At, um, I saw maybe uh, someone asked a commissioner in Texas, or maybe it was in Virginia, if they remember any fights ever being overturned. And I think she, in like 25 years, she only mentioned one. So why would they even go through this? Or would they just learn from the situation and move forward? I, I think guys teams do it just to show that they're really against the decision you know like we're making the stand we're taking money out of our pockets we're putting our our money where our mouths are and we're not just going to complain about it we're going to actually you know it's like somebody saying you know you recognize the problem you're saying these kids don't have food and you pass them up every day why don't you give them some food so if you just go quietly by and let it happen people are going to say well you didn't even think enough to put your money in and put your time at so why, why should I second-guess it? So I think they're just doing it symbolically to prove the point and to take a stand. I don't think anybody really thinks anything's going to happen because, as you said, nothing ever changes when they file these appeals. Um, I can see the UFC doing this fight over again just because the UFC is a sucker for storylines. Anything that starts some controversy, anything that gets draws some interest, anything that makes people want to be like, you know, oh, this was, you know, anything that gets a, a reaction from the fans, it's something the UFC takes note of, pays attention to, and and takes into consideration when, when building certain fights. Even if it's not a named fight, it draws attention, it takes some interest, and it has a storyline that does that that does the UFC's job for them. And even though it wouldn't be like a a main event or co-main event, it'd be an interest a fight with a storyline on a you could put on a weak card that people might be invested in and just because they've seen the ridiculousness of the uh fight it'd be funny if they use the same ref too now that would be interesting that would really get people yeah, that, would, that. that actually would be pretty um pretty hilarious too i'm not even gonna lie about that 
let's uh, focus on our third topic of the night. Let me pull my agenda back up. And we are talking about Rose Namajunas and Paul Felder. Now, Rose has, she's openly talked about her struggles with continuing to fight and whether or not she wants to stay in this game too much longer. I mean, she's still rather young, but she's talked openly about mental health and, and her um, anxiety issues if she wants to stay um, competing. Then on the flip side of that, you have Paul Felder, who recently announced his retirement while in the cage after fighting Dan Hooker in Australia. Now, he's kind of walking that back, saying that he would like to fight again if another big battle comes along. Let's talk about these two individuals here because there's been a frequent, uh, I want to say a consistent thought that if fighters are openly talking about and thinking about retirement, they should go ahead and go through with retirement because it takes away from their ability to adequately prepare from fights. Looking at what Nami Yunus and Felder have both um, accomplished in the cage, do you think that that idea applies to them? Should we should we be talking about them in a way where they should be not necessarily, I don't want to say forced to retire, but they should, the people close to them should be think, talking to them more about retiring because they're already having these thoughts out loud. Are we looking at, at that situation or will we see these two individuals both back in the, in, in the cage and competing at, at a high level? Well, the thing about Paul Felder is he's got a lot of things going on. He's great on the microphone. He's got a good personality. He's smart. He seems to have other avenues, even within the sport, that he, he can exploit and he can use to get his career going or to maintain money or to uh, be involved in the sport. So that's the first thing. But the most important thing is Paul Felder, and, and he said this, and a lot of guys say this, and, and as they come closer to the end of their career, a lot of guys start to change their tune on this. But the thing that Paul Felder has always said is, I'm not in this sport to take beatings or to be in fights just to be in fights. I don't want to just be fighting nobodies. I don't just want to be fighting just to stay busy or to keep my uh, or or to or to, to to make ends meet. I'm doing this to a be the best and b fight the best challenges. Even if I'm not the best, I want to be facing name quality guys, guys who are going down in history, guys who are the biggest names here. He has a he has a specific purpose and goal in what he's doing. And he said if he can't do that, he's not interested in just fighting. But at this stage, he's gotten to the point where he's beating all the other guys. He's beating the rest. But now, once again, he's getting to a position where he's unable to beat the very best guys he's facing. When he fought Edson, he lost to him. Who else did he lose to? Mike Perry would have been a guy he lost to who would have been one of, even though it was at welterweight, it was, would have been the, one of the better, bigger names he faced. He lost to him. He lost to Barboza twice. You know, it's like he's lost to guy, who, people who would be considered the elite of the division. And now he fought Hooker, who to, to a lot of people was also considered to be the elite of the division. So basically at this stage, he's almost fighting just to fight because he's not beating the elite guys. And after a loss against Hooker, what's the chances of him getting another elite guy to fight? You know, he's gonna, he would get like a Ally Quinta or a Benil Dariush, guys who were good fighters, guys he respects, but guys who aren't name fighters and they're not considered all-time great. He's been, he wants names. He wants elite guys, and he's been trying to get them for the better part of the last year and a half. How many times did he call out Justin Gaethje? Not because he disrespects Justin Gaethje, but Justin Gaethje is considered a big name. Justin Gaethje is considered a true test for elite guys. Justin Gaethje is considered an elite guy himself. He wants those kind of names. He wants those kind of opportunities. He's not just going to fight just for the sake of fighting. And if he's not going to fight just for the sake of fighting because he just loves fighting, 
his ability to stay active is going to lessen dramatically because there's not a lot of guys who are ahead of him. He doesn't want to take any steps backwards. So if you don't want to take any steps backwards, you don't want to fight anybody who's not a lead. You don't want to fight anybody who's not a name. That essentially means you can't fight 75% of the division. So to that regard, even if he's not retired, retired, he's, he's kind of retired because he's saying he's just not taking fights just to take them. He's not going to stay busy. And if you're not going to stay busy, how do you stay up in the rankings? How do you get, how do you get bigger names coming off a loss? Unless somebody falls out and you come in late and take over a fight. How do you get those names? You're not putting wins together. You're not constantly fighting. How do you how, how do you get back to the position where you can get a name fighter if you're not going to fight anybody lesser and build yourself back up because you only want names or you only want a league guy? How do you go about doing that? I don't think you do. You know that that so that to me that's problematic. As far as Rose, I think Rose when she got the title, she realized it wasn't. And I, I'm just guessing. I don't know her like that. I think. Having the titles, like Ronda Rousey said, it's a little bit different than you think it is. Because a lot of it isn't preparing and fighting the best. It's dealing with all the extra hangers-on, all the media promotion, all the attention and energy you have to waste on things outside of fighting. I think that got to her. And I also think she she's a smart woman. She's She understands the reality of what she's doing. She's uh, Pat... What's his name? I can't remember his name. Pat... Uh, but her boyfriend's a kickboxer and a former fighter, MMA fighter. She's very aware of the results and the consequences and the risks that come with it. So I can imagine her not wanting to overstay her welcome, especially coming off of the kind of loss that she had. It's one thing to get submitted. It's one thing to get beat up. She got, like, powerbombed. Like, you know, she got really stopped, really hurt. And, and I think it really changed her perspective on, on how much of a risk she wants to put herself through through both training and actually fighting these, these caliber of opponents. You know, she had never lost like that, and I think that kind of loss really shook her confidence and made her think, how much longer do I want to expose myself to these kind of risks? Mm. All right, so I think that's it for our topics today, man. I just wanted to also touch upon, did you see this fight that was announced? Uh, Ricardo Lamas is fighting Ryan Hall in Oklahoma City, uh, and this is in, it was just announced today. May 2nd. So here he is. Um, I guess so. What I did not know is if a fighter, let's say Ryan Hall in a situation, is looking to fight and he is consistently getting denied by his opponents. Did you know that the UFC has have to pay has to pay him out based on the terms of his contract? I did not know that. So wait a minute. A situation so if he, comes, if he if he if he can't get fights, they have to pay him his contract. So for and, and this is and I, and I didn't get a chance to research this, but I, I was looking, I was listening to um, a couple of podcasts that talked about this. So Hall, for example, was offered if he's offered multiple fights, he signs and his opponents um, deny or um, decline the fight. If it goes on for an extended period of time, let's say a whole year, the UFC can't find him an opponent. They have to pay him out for the number of fights he's promised in that year. So let's say he's promised three fights at $60,000 each. They got to pay him 180k. Wow. I did not know that. That like that's pretty interesting. So Hall finally gets a fight. He has not fought since um I think Gray um Darren, Darren Elkins Darren Elkins was his last fight back in July. 
and he's only oh, fought yeah. twice since um, December 2016. Like that's stupid. Let me. I'm gonna pull up his record real quick because um. I mean, the fact the fact of the matter is he's he's a high risk, low reward guy. You beat him. He's not highly ranked. He's not highly thought of by the majority of mixed martial arts fans. You but you lose to him, and it it's a complete collapse of your ranking. So I mean, I can see why people don't want to fight him. It doesn't make a lot of sense for you monetarily. There's not a lot lot of money into it. Fame wise, there's not a lot into it. But if you lose, it's it's a tremendous setback. It is a tremendous tremendous setback. So Ryan Hall joined the UFC in 2015, where he defeated Artem Lobov at the Ultimate Fighter, um, and he has fought four times since then. Once in 2015, he fought. So he fought 20. Is he fought in 2015? He fought a year later on December 3rd in 2016. Fought two years later on December 29th, 2018, and then he fought in July of 2019. Yeah, the big thing is he's also in that situation where he, he fought lower-level guys, and now he's trying to get named guys, and nobody wants to take that risk. So he starts, he starts being avoided because, like I said, there, there's, no, there, there's no benefit to beating Ryan Hall. Beating him is just, oh, I want to fight, and it, it doesn't do much for you. Losing to him is cat- catastrophic for your career as far as the ranking, as far as the money you can make, as far as your chance of getting big names and moving ahead. So I see why guys don't want to fight him, and I can see why the UFC is probably maybe paying Lamas a little bit extra to do take this fight because they don't want to have to pay out anybody. And this makes this makes a lot more sense to me now when I hear guys say they're taking they're they're signing all the fights and they're not turning anybody down because if this is true, it's in your best interest not to turn anybody down because if nobody accepts the fight, you get you get paid out for not doing anything except accepting a fight. So this 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 makes a lot of things make sense to me now when I hear how fighters approach. Um, you know, whether they take a fight or not, or they're always saying, I'll, I'll fight anybody. If that's what you're doing and you can't get a fight, then yeah, this is a very smart thing. They're either going to get you the fight you want, or they're going to pay you. Either one's fine with the fighter. It's very hard to come by money, and it's very hard to come by a uh, high-quality fight. So either way, you're going to get what you want one way or another. True. So uh, before, before we go, I wanted to, I wanted to talk briefly about I know it was a little while ago about the Carolina Kovacavich issue. I just want to make a brief comment. Sure. I, I do not – everybody always gets mad at me because I'm always picking on MMA camps. But the thing about it is you were paid to train and develop a fighter, not just to write off their skill set or write off their physical tools. Because at some point, if you don't increase the skill set, they're going to get figured out. They're going to start losing. Even if they're not taking punishment, they're going to start losing, which means they lose money, means they lose rankings, often – lose the length of their career due to, due to the fact that they can't adjust or they can't become adaptable. Or in the case of fighters who rely solely on physical tools, when those physical tools hit their wall and they can no longer be cared by them, those fighters burn out very quickly. They, they burn out so fast you don't even remember their name. In the case of Carolina Kovacavich, that's what her, her, her camp did. They, they mistook it. They, for some reason, thought that she was the caliber of durability and caliber of athlete that Jessica Andrade is. And instead of diversifying her skill set and kind of changing up her approach, kind of using her durability and her volume and her physicality as a launching point and building off that so she had different ways to bring those things to bear, all they did was lean heavily on her ability to take punishment, her ability to push the pace, and her ability to get in close and beat people up. 
And at a certain point, that's just not being enough. And as a result, now that she doesn't have that durability anymore, it's affected her aggression, it affects her volume, it affects her cardio, and she doesn't have anything to fall back on. If she is not going forward throwing at you or going forward getting clinches, she has nothing for you, nothing in mid-range, nothing in long-range, nothing inside. And not only is she getting exposed badly, she is taking life-altering beatings. In her last two or three fights, she is just getting beat pillar to post. And it's not because she doesn't want to be better. It's not because she doesn't have a warrior's heart. It's not because she's not a fighter. It's because her camp has not done their job and prepared her appropriately. Your job is to coach and develop somebody to win. And your second job is to coach and develop them well enough that even win or lose, they take or can navigate or manage the amount of damage they take during their career. They have done neither. They haven't given her the skills to win. They haven't given her the skills to make it through fights without getting career-altering damage. And those are the only two jobs they have. They've relied strictly on the ability that she can outpace people and she can walk through anything. The same Carolina we see now is the same Carolina we saw three, four years ago when she fought Rose Namajunas, and it was barely enough to beat Rose then, and now it's not even enough to be competitive against these young, younger, stronger versions of herself. So once again, we have seen that MMA coaching and MMA training has shortened another career of a, of a at least at, at a certain level, world-class opponent. Somebody with her durability and her cardio should still be a factor in the division because they've allowed her to plateau and in some cases decline as a fighter. She's, she's not even a top 15 fighter. She really shouldn't be in the UFC at this point. She can't defend herself against these cal this caliber of opponent anymore. And it, it's depressing to see and it, it's quite embarrassing. And it, it makes me think that a lot of people don't take women's mixed martial arts seriously because some of these game plans and some of these supposedly training they're doing with these girls, two, three years Later, these girls look like the same fighter they were, if not worse. This is a prime example of it. Her career has been shortened, if not ruined, by sloppiness and lack of dedication and, I guess, lack of knowledge. Because if they knew better, I guess they'd show her better. And she hasn't gotten better at all, and it's basically cost her career and any possible chance she had of being a title contender or a world-ranked fighter. And I'm, I'm just sad for it, because this, this isn't a sport you should shortchange somebody on, especially somebody who's so willing to take the kind of fight and take the kind of punishment that fans so often love. You're, she she deserves better than that. And she hasn't gotten it, and her career is probably close to over if it's not over already. So do you think she is done in the UFC? They might keep her because you can build the name off somebody. Somebody can look really good about her, but I'd have a hard time putting her in fights against physical, strong, athletic girls. She can't defend herself. If she can't physically manhandle you, bully you, she has nothing. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Against Rose Namajunas, she did some work in the clinic. She landed some punches. But what's the biggest thing everybody remembers about that fight? How much punishment she took and walked through to get to those clinches. Against Joanna Jandrejic, what happened against that fight? We mentioned, we remember that one knockdown. But you know what happened after that 20 seconds and before that 20 seconds? She got her ass whooped. For five rounds straight, she took a beating. She had no answers, no technical answers, no adjustment, no growth. She's been the same fighter for the entirety of her time in the UFC, and it's finally caught up to her. And now she doesn't even have the durability to, to, to get her hands on these girls. She has the skills to defend herself, and she's just gonna get—it's just gonna get worse. And I'd rather them just cut her and let her go to a lower class the fighter before before she really gets hurt. And and, it, and she already has the damage to her eye. It's not gonna get better. Those things don't get better. Ask Misha Tate. Ask Josh Koscheck. So did you see? Did you see the last fight she was in where she got bludgeoned? Yes. Yeah, it, it yeah. was uh, it was it, it was it was definitely pretty bad. 
couldn't block, couldn't parry, couldn't control distance. She didn't use front kick. She didn't use side kick. She didn't have a jab. Like, she did literally nothing but walk towards this girl throwing punches and kicks and got lit up. Her only hope is that she's going to bully her and out and out volume her. Except this girl, who also is not very skilled, is basically a younger, bigger, stronger version of Carolina. And Carolina's a faded version. By this point, Carolina should have developed enough seasoning and poise to pick her spot and outsmart a girl like this. But because she hasn't been properly developed, all she has is her toughness. And her toughness it ain't what it used to be, which means she just reduced to running into punches and getting beat up. And we're reduced to watching it for 15 minutes. 15 minutes of watching assault. A, a, a Basically, that that's that's basically it. we just watching this all for 15 minutes. That wasn't even a fight. That was a one-way beating. It was not competitive in any any. Well, I agree with you there, sir. I definitely agree with you at that point, sir. So I want to move into our final segment where we are doing um, show questions. We're finally getting into the habit of pulling in some questions that we get from our listeners, and we have two today. Two pretty simple ones. Um, we've kind of touched on them during the show today, but the first is from um, MTF the third one through uh, Roman numeral three, and it's what should the UFC do about men's flyweight division now that the group still doesn't have a champion? How much you handle that, Mishwan? Well, what they should do is maintain their commitment to it and be a professional organization. Get more fighters in there, rebuild the division, and keep it going. But UFC is not always very professional, and they don't do the right things all the time, and I think they're just going to leave the division to die. I think if enough people say they don't care about it, the division's gone. But I, I believe they should. If they're going to if they're gonna fight tooth and nail to make the featherweight division a thing, they, they can give the flyweight division a little bit more, a little more rope. There's, there's a lot of fl- excellent flyweight fighters. It's not like there's a lack of fighters. There's a lack of fighters in featherweight. There's not a lack of fighters in flyweight. They just choose not to pay them and choose not to bring them in because they don't want to. It's a personal choice. They don't want to. You know, it's no more popular than when Henry Cejudo. Henry Cejudo wasn't a big name. It's no more popular than when DJ was. DJ wasn't a big name, and they kept it around. Then it's just a matter of whether Dana White chooses to bestow his his blessings upon the flyweight division to allow it. But what should they do? Keep the division, rebuild it, rebrand it keep it going what will they do probably let it die probably leave it to drown in the ocean leave it to drown in the ocean um in my opinion i think that they should let it they should build it back up um in my in like because i think they should i think they should build it back up if they're going to be serious about it if not let them all go let them go find some opportunities in some other organizations and stop holding them hostage but I think we need to be honest about the fact that this this division was underserved when you look at them compared to other weight classes. And that actually kind of leads us into our second question where we're being asked whether or not the, why why isn't the women's flyweight division talked about the same way as the men's flyweight um, group? And I think a lot of this really hinges on the fact that Valentina Shevchenko is their champion. Valentina is a champion that the UFC wants to promote. They want to push her to the forefront. If they could, they would get her back into a fight with Amanda Nunez as quickly as possible. And the fact that they have a marketable champion that the demographic of MMA fans will watch now, we don't know exactly how much they're watching her, but they know that they're pushing her in a way that would um, cater to that market. That plays a big part in that division sticking around. I mean, she's about to, she just, she's ev- ev- eviscerated Jessica I. 
She pounded out um, Caitlin Trukagian. I don't know what special finishing move she's going to hit Joanna um, or, or, or Joanne Calderwood with, but we know that she's just continually chopping them off one after one after uh, another. I really want to see her fight Roxanne Matafari, but that's just because I I, I want Roxanne to kind of surprise us all. But that's neither here nor there. The women's flyweight division has a champion at the UFC is getting behind, or they are behind. So that's why this division isn't being managed the same way as the men's flyweight group. Well, I, I think that's part of it also. But, I mean, outside of Valentina, because I don't, I don't know how actually marketable she is when we get down to it. I don't know how marketable she is. I don't know that she sells a bunch of pay-per-views or she's a big star. I, I don't know that for a fact. But one thing I can say is the flyweight division has multiple fighters who moved the needle. Once again, you have Paige Van Zandt. She hasn't been active. Paige Van Zandt is a name fighter. She moves the needle. Macy Barber isn't a huge star, but people are invested in Macy Barber. Valentin Shevchenko, people are invested in her as well. And then, like you said, Roxy Martafari. While she's not a huge star, she's like a cult star. She has a lot of fans from all over the globe, all over the world. And while she's not wildly popular, she has a steady fan base. So they have four, five, six fighters who have legitimate fan base, even Rachel Osovich, not the greatest fighter, but she has a fan base. Some would say a very creepy and perverted fan base, but still a fan base. In the men's division, outside of Joseph Benavides, they didn't really have anybody who really struck a nerve with fans. I'd say Roxy Matifari is more popular than anybody else in the men's division outside of Joseph Benavides. I would say Paige Manzan is more popular than Joseph Benavides. You know, I, I they have a couple people with some name value, with some cachet, who they can they can either sell fights on based on their length of time in the sport. Someone like a like we said, like a um, Roxy Matafari. You have Valentina, Rachel Ostovich, Paige Van Zandt, who play up the attractiveness. I guess Macy Barber to a certain degree, but but they have they have avenues that they can sell them in. And plus, I hate to say it, but when you're dealing with women fighters, you can always play up another aspect of it, which would be the look, that that appeal. And, and so they have, I think they have more ways to appeal. I think they have more interest, even though I don't know that their division is quite as competitive as the men's division. The men's wasn't very, but you take, you take Demetrius Johnson out and you have a very competitive division. If you take Valentina Shevchenko out, I don't know that this division is really all that competitive anyways, to be quite honest. I mean, there's really still only one or two girls who is really good enough to hold the title, in my, in my estimation. So, um... I think that's why they don't catch as much flag. One, because of the the, the multiple avenues that having that having female fighters provide you. Some some excellent professionals. Some, let's face it, just quite tacky. And also, I, I there's a certain aspect. I think sometimes when you have certain groups in a position of power, or they're doing something, it avoids criticism because you don't want to seem as if you're against that group. And if you go too hard against a women's division, somebody might say that you're sexist. Someone might say you're misogynist. And nobody wants to deal with that. And nobody needs those kind of problems. I mean, those faceless avatars on Twitter don't mind it. But people with real faces, with real names, with real careers don't want to be attached anywhere near that. So I think that's another reason why the division doesn't get nearly as much flack as it would normally. Because it starts sounding like you're being sexist. It sounds like you're taking a shot at women instead of just making a comment about the quality of the division and the quality of the fight. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Interesting thoughts. And all of that, we're going to 
go ahead and we're going to talk about um, closing out this episode today. Why don't you let everybody know what you're working on? Um, I'm going to do another character, uh, live action character breakdown. I'm going to do one for Daredevil. I'm going to do one for Black Widow. She's got like a, they have Black Widow movie coming out in the next month or probably two months. And I think we're going to be coming up on the anniversary of the Daredevil TV show. So I'm going to actually, um, like I did with Captain America, like I did with the Green Arrow, I'm going to treat these live action comic book characters like they're fighters to a degree. And I'm going to break down the techniques they use, the strategies they use, and the hows, what's, and why's behind them, why they use those techniques and why they use the strategies, and kind of treat it like I would treat a fighter. And kind of something that the mixed martial arts fans like, because it's, it's legitimate breakdowns, legitimate techniques, and comic book fans like, because it's somebody taking something they're very passionate about very seriously and treating it with a certain respect that they don't often get from people who consider it to be fantasy and not real and, and uninteresting. So I, I'd like to think that I cover both bases. And as far as the show, I'm hoping we can get um, Cindy Marisic on at some point. She used to be a sparring partner, training partner, Valentina Shinchenko. And Valentina is going to be fighting Jojo Calderwood, another noted striker outside of mixed martial arts. So maybe we could get a world-class striker, a person who's trained fighters as well, and get a woman's point of view over one of the biggest women fights coming up in mixed martial arts this year. Okay. All right. All right. So, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and close uh, this episode out. Shawan, I appreciate you being back on. Um, let's let's, let's hey. make sure you know we do what we gotta do to hey. get you back on the show. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I said it on Twitter before. I appreciate this man greatly because he's very dedicated to these shows, very dedicated to these podcasts, and he he is very he wants people on the show and he wants them giving their best, and he's allowed me to through my distractions, to still be a part of the show and not give me any flack, never give me any issue or make me feel guilty about it. He's always been very accommodating, very supportive, and that's what you want in a friend, which I consider him, and what you want in a co-host, which he obviously is. So I just want to say another thanks to you for being that kind of person, because not everybody is, and I appreciate that. Well, sir, you know, I mean, this show's been going on for almost five years now, and you've been here basically for the whole time. Me, it's been either you or Roy Billington, who's who's our first co-host, and that, um, we need to get him back on one day too. But Definitely. this show wouldn't be here without you on it. So let's go ahead and keep doing what we're doing, and let's continue working on growing this show. But with that in mind, man, we're gonna go ahead and close out. Um, thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to our content. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and we will be back next week. Good night, everyone. All right. Good night, guys. <laughs>